In 2020, the SFA explores the future of the South. We kick things off in Birmingham on March 28th with our Spring Symposium, where we take a hard look at the future of the restaurant. Food & Wine Magazine restaurant editor Kushbu Shah and editor-in-chief Hunter Lewis discuss the future of restaurant criticism. SFA professor Katerina Pasadomo examines restaurants as doorsteps to culture. We screen a new film that profiles Rodney Scott and Roscoe Hall in 21st century barbecue legacies. And chef John Hall hails Birmingham as a bold American food city. Tickets, priced at $150, are available online now at southernfoodways.org. We invite you to join us on March 28th. In the U.S., more than 2 million people live in prisons and jails, and a third of them live in the South. Of the 10 states with the highest incarceration rates in the country, a majority are Southern states, including number one, Louisiana, which locks up nearly 700 of every 100,000 people. That translates to a lot of incarcerated Southerners, a lot of neighbors and friends and family, a lot of Monday breakfasts and Friday night dinners. And that begs a question for a podcast like Gravy, which aims to document regional foodways and tell complicated stories about the South. So how do people in prison eat? What do they eat? Does the table that our society now sets for incarcerated people, does that table sustain? I can't imagine that it does. <sighs> I think it probably shames both provider and the receiver. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. We're your hosts for Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells new and complicated stories about the changing American South. Let's let Irina Zhuroff tell the story. When Lupa Brandt was young, She'd eat whatever was convenient. Milk by the court from the 7-Eleven, Egg McMuffins. You don't care. You're just going to eat what, what you want, you know. In 1982, when she was 20 years old, she got arrested in Georgia. She was sent to jail, then a prison 70 miles northeast of Atlanta. Suddenly, she had to rely on the state to feed her. In the early days, we actually got fed pretty good food. She got three meals a day. You might get like a quarter of fried chicken, mashed potatoes and gravy, a piece of cake, maybe some crowder peas or field peas or something, and a couple of rolls, you know, it was decent. I mean, it would fill you up and it would last you until the next day. Once a month, she and her fellow inmates would get turkey and dressing. And that was a really good meal and everybody was going for it. She says at one point, her facility actually had a warden that tested the food. During every meal, the warden or a staff member would get in line at the chow hall and get a tray. And they didn't have to eat everything on there, but they had to sample everything on there. And if it wasn't cooked right, if the chicken was half raw or whatever, they were going back behind the line and somebody was fixing to get reamed out because they made sure our food was decent. You know, I never forgot that. I mean, it... It, it earned him much respect. Lupa says things started to change in the 90s. She says the turkey and dressing dinners disappeared. 
The cooks stretched more expensive ingredients by loading them with cheap filler. Your tuna salad would be green because they had so much celery chopped up into it. She says sandwich bread would crumble, greens were watery, egg product replaced eggs, biscuits were hard, grits lacked butter, and the quality of the meat declined. They actually started serving us something called VitaPro, and that was actually a cattle food that was not for human consumption. Most prisons have like, you know, a few cats or something running around, you know, that are wild or whatever. You could take and throw that meat out to one of the wild cats, and even a cat wouldn't eat it. The prison also reduced the number of meals. On days the inmates weren't working, they got just two meals per day. That still stands in Georgia. Lupa says people went around hungry. They just stopped caring about what they served. It was give them just barely enough to keep them alive at the cheapest cost we can possibly do. Lupa and her fellow inmates became kind of obsessed with the food. Food was always a source of our topic of conversation in a negative way. It was always complaining, oh, this is bad, this is bad. Zahara Green was first incarcerated in 2008 when she was 17, also in Georgia. She says for her, too, food was the center of conversation. It was something else, too. Zahara is a trans woman, but was placed in a men's facility. The way administrators attempted to protect her from male inmates' abuse was by isolating her. So Zahara spent a lot of time in segregated housing. Instead of going to the chow hall, food is brought to inmates in isolation. For me, just going through every single day like this, all you had to look forward to because you didn't have any interaction with anyone until they brought you food. The trays were similar to what Lupa describes, but the delivery was spotty. Sometimes they would have the food sitting right outside of the door for an hour or two and serve it to its cold. Other times, she says, it'd be even worse. Zahara remembers one time when two inmates got in a fight and the officers punished the whole dorm. So he didn't serve lunch. Georgia Corrections did not agree to a taped interview, but the agency denies that food is used as punishment and said they could not confirm some of the other conditions Lupa and Zahara describe, including the use of Vitapro. Zahara says she and many others have lived it. These are people who are incarcerated. Do we want to, as a nation, harm people and by the time they get out, they're not able to add to our society because they're dealing with so many health issues as a product of having to be incarcerated. Leslie Sobel with a National Justice System Research and Reform nonprofit called Impact Justice says food is more than calories. When you're being served food that's insufficient or inedible or that is literally labeled on the box not fit for human consumption, you're basically being told that you don't matter, that you're disposable to society. And we really can't underestimate the mental and emotional impact that devaluing someone's humanity in that way can have on their mental state. Reports of vermin in prison food have surfaced in the news. One study shows that people in prison are disproportionately affected by foodborne illnesses. There's little data to show how common the really bad stuff is. But Leslie says meals don't need to be vermin-infested to affect people. Take the average tray. There are generally a lot of carbs. You see a lot of white bread, uh, noodles, 
cake, a lot of desserts. There are often fortified beverages as a way to get the nutrients that one is supposed to be receiving. There's often some sort of protein item that might or might not be meat. (laughs) There's not a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables. Uh, There's portions on the tray generally aren't particularly generous. There's not a lot of flavor. Things tend to be very bland. This bad food can really contribute to disconnection from your sense of self, from your community, and there can be just a general decline in emotional stability. Quality can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. For example, just in the South, states serve inmates anywhere from 2,300 to 3,800 calories per day. Some facilities provide three meals every day, others step down to two on weekends. Some rely on processed food, others use fresh veggies from farms they operate. There's little oversight. But one recent survey shows Lupa's and Sahara's situations were not unique. Impact Justice surveyed 200 people across 41 states. The survey was distributed through community groups, some of which advocate for prison reform, and it has obvious response bias. Mika Weinstein with Impact Justice says the results are not representative of the entire incarcerated population. But it does hint at big problems. More than three quarters of the people who responded reported that they rarely or never had access to fresh vegetables, and more than 60% reported rarely or never having access to fresh fruits. Over 90% reported that they felt hungry between meals, or that meals didn't taste good. Three quarters reported at some point being fed rotten or spoiled food. There's a reason food has become such an afterthought in prisons. In the last several decades, the prison population in the U.S. has gotten drastically, drastically bigger. This is Wanda Bertram with the Prison Policy Initiative, another criminal justice think tank. Just in Georgia, where Lupa and Zahara are from, the prison population went from less than 15,000, that's 1-5, in 1978, to more than 50,000, 5-0, today. Wanda says budgets didn't keep up with the ballooning prison population. Unfortunately, in the United States, we have this punitive attitude in our culture of you do the crime, you do the time, which means that nobody is particularly excited about spending additional money on the care of of incarcerated people. And what that means is that down the line, as prison populations have gotten bigger, state correctional budgets have been strained to provide food for, for this burgeoning population. In Georgia, the Department of Corrections spent just over $4 on food per inmate per day in 1990. That's in today's dollars. By 2019, the budget had gone down to almost a third of that, to $1.43 per inmate per day. There's no good data to compare Georgia to other jurisdictions, But Tim Thielman, who manages food at a Minnesota facility and is the president of the Association of Correctional Food Service Affiliates, says he sees such cuts regularly. Food service is usually one of the first areas when they have to cut something in an institution. It's something that usually budgets will take the hit. Some facilities trying to save money on food have chosen to contract food prep with private companies like Aramark and Trinity. That can be a problem, says Wanda, with the Prison Policy Initiative, because private companies prioritize profit. That's what they're for, and what that means is that a company, as soon as it begins a contract with the prison system, is going to start trying to find ways to cut costs. 
In the South, it's a mixed bag. Mississippi and West Virginia, for example, contract out all of their facilities. Florida, Virginia, and Georgia contract some facilities and oversee the rest in-house. Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, and the Carolinas, they keep everything in-house. It's not clear which approach makes for better quality food. Mika with Impact Justice says contractors may be less responsive to inmates' preferences, since they get paid whether people are tossing their trays or not. But there's little research comparing corporate versus state food prep. As with so many other things in prison, inmates look for workarounds to maintain their dignity and survive. Some people fight the system. Many protests in prison start with or include demands for better food. Zahara Green didn't bother with that. I just thought it was a no-win battle. I'm like, oh, I guess it comes with being in a place like jail. So I never really fought for better food while I was incarcerated because I always had alternative. That alternative was the commissary. For those who have money, prison commissaries offer packaged foods like ramen noodles and candy bars at inflated prices. Nutritionally, these foods might have little value, but the commissary offers something else choice. I was in this one prison I was at. There were seven transgender women who were there with me. One of the things that we did was with the commissary items that we had, we often made meals together. I remember um, this one time, it was New Year's, and we made like a cake out of honey bun and Hershey's chocolate with like Happy New Year with M&Ms written on it. Lupa recalls similar celebrations. She says people would often make something called a pocket out of ramen. And that's where you would take and you would put the dry soups in like a bowl or in a trash bag or whatever. You'd add in chips, pickles, sausages, and always a bunch of hot sauce. Mix it all up together and then pour hot water on it to just wet it good and then cap it and like put it under a blanket or something to hold the heat in and let it cook, you know, and it thickens up and it's like a casserole type thing. She remembers one Christmas. And I got like 12 people together with me and we all put in like five or six dollars worth of food and so we got up as soon as the lights came on in the morning and went out in the freezing weather outside so we didn't wake everybody up busting up soups and dumping them in multiple big trash bags they made an enormous pocket and fed about 70 people we actually made um little invitation cards that we gave out to the people that we knew that didn't have anything. It was just doing something good without expecting something back. And those were good times. Up next, we explore the long-term effects of a prison diet on the health of inmates and the way that diet impacts how they eat once they leave those gates. Named for the original Lodge Cast Iron Foundry, Blacklock capitalizes on Lodge's heritage and long-standing reputation of innovation and quality. Blacklock cookware models the thin, lightweight design of historic cast iron and celebrates the latest Lodge advancement, a triple season finish. This process gets you natural non-stick finish right out of the box, and those three layers of seasoning enhance the great flavor Lodge Cast Iron is known for. Each piece heats up and cools down fast for everyday cooking. Cleanup is even easier. 
As Lodge introduces Blacklock Cast Iron Cookware, the beloved South Pittsburgh, Tennessee company leverages its past to look toward the future, toward what we can cook together. You may find Blacklock Cookware online at blacklockfoundry.com. For Lodge Cast Iron's support of the Southern Foodways Alliance and all of our work, including this podcast, we thank them. When Lupa Brandt went into prison, she was young and healthy. By middle age, that started to change. Probably the last 10 or 15 years I was in, I had really bad acid reflux. She had kidney stones, a stroke, arthritis, and back problems. Part of that is going to be just from getting old. I'll be 58 later this year. But between the living conditions, the lack of proper medical treatment, and then the food... My health deteriorated considerably. Zahara Green felt ill inside, too. Energy was a main thing. I didn't have any energy because I guess I was just eating so many carbs, just so many unhealthy processed foods. She says she was often nauseous and vomiting, and her blood pressure and glucose levels just kept going up and up. At one point, she read the labels on the commissary food she was eating. Oh my God, it has all this sodium in it, and look at these ingredients, and just understanding why I was dealing with possibly borderline diabetes and hypertension while I was incarcerated because of what I was consuming. Just being able to understand that everything that I was eating there was really tearing my body down. Three quarters of people in prison are overweight or obese. About 40% are managing a chronic condition. High blood pressure is the most common one. Incarcerated people across the country suffer from chronic illnesses at higher rates than the general population. Leslie Sobel with Impact Justice says by saving pennies now, departments of corrections are doing long-term public health damage. About 95% of incarcerated people will eventually be released. Leslie says in her conversations with prison food administrators, she found people who did want to do good by their charges. But feeding thousands of people for very little money almost inevitably leads to subpar food. And Leslie says it's short-sighted to ignore the effect of that. It's really in everyone's best interest for returning citizens to be in the best physical and mental and emotional place that they can be. So they're less likely to become reinvolved in the justice system. And so they can be good family members and good neighbors and succeed in jobs and rejoining their communities. Lupa Brandt got out in 2015 after serving 33 years. Today, she enjoys a good steak, but she still eats ramen noodles as well. She gets up from her easy chair where we're talking and goes to the kitchen. She opens a cabinet. And that's my stack of soups right there, you know. And uh, right here on the table is my big bottle of hot sauce to go with them, you know. (laughs) That's kind of my comfort food. After being incarcerated off and on, Zahara Green was released in 2014. She and Lupa now work together at a transgender rights organization in Atlanta. One evening, I joined Zahara and her best friend, Erin Kettle, as they prepare dinner. We're going to do Brussels sprouts tonight. We're going to do some broccoli. Uh, We're going to do some spinach. We're going to do some potatoes with goat cheese. And we're going to do, we're doing turkey rings for our protein for tonight. About two years ago, Zahara started to seriously change the way she ate. She says she hasn't always eaten vegetables, but now every meal is full of them. 
She and Aaron cook regularly. They drive miles in search of farmers markets and organic produce. Food is everything to me. I am more conscious with everything I eat now than I've ever been. As Aaron chops potatoes and green onions, Zahara reflects on her food journey. She says she's never done well with being forced to do something. I am a transgender woman, and in a society where being transgender today means so much harm that can be caused, so much violence. So I've just always been the type of person that wanted to live my life and be who I want to be and, and be as free as possible. And understanding that that was a situation that I wasn't able to eat. And I think that was a big thing. When she got out, she made sure she was in control. I actually had a situation happen with my ex. We were at a McDonald's. He was paying for the meal and ordered the wrong thing for her. And I said, no, 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 I didn't order that. This is what I wanted. He's like, oh, it's just like this. It's the same. It's just an extra piece of cheese. I'm like, well, that's what I want. I want my, I want my extra piece of cheese on my sandwich. I guess that was just part of it. Like, I don't want what someone wants me to have. I want what I want. That desire for what she wants, it's food, but it's so much more. It's autonomy. For me, I think it's very empowering to know, to truly know what I'm putting in my body, what I'm consuming. So I think it's very empowering for me to be able to make those decisions on my own and not be limited into what someone is giving me. Sahara checks on the turkey wings and bastes them. They're golden, perched on a bed of carrots. Water is boiling to steam the broccoli. The potatoes are crispy but not greasy. They clean as they go in Sahara's beautiful, spotless kitchen. I think another thing that changed for me pre-incarceration, I never was like made a lot of food and like served my family. This last Thanksgiving and Christmas, I hosted Thanksgiving and Christmas at my house. I made most of all the food myself and Aaron, and everyone loved it. So I guess would I guess that's a good thing. Yeah. It's been five years since Zahara had to eat prison food. I asked her what she would want to tell the people who plan out meals at correctional facilities. She says she wants them to look at the trays and think, would I feed my family this? Irina Zhorov reported this episode. Special thanks go to... We thank Wendell Patrick, now and forevermore, for Gravy's <laughs> theme music, Jazar for our donor music, and we thank audio engineer Charlie Kyer for making us sound lucid. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. Mary Beth Lassiter serves as our publisher. If you want to dig more into this issue, and we hope you do, we recommend Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And look for a new report by Impact Justice on the state of food in American prisons coming in early 2020. A side note, do you know who provides the food for a lot of prisons? Airmark. You know where else they sell food? Universities. Including the one where we work. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm John T. Edge. Visit us at southernfoodways.org and join us at the SFA table by becoming a member. That means make a donation too, please. It would help. It does help. Thanks for listening to Gravy.